All right, so Mr. William Tyndale, there he is, very handsome fellow. And that's not working yet. Maybe that stopped working because we moved the monitors. There we go. Okay. He was born 1495-ish in England. He died October 6th, 1536, at the ripe old age of 42. And spoiler alert, he was martyred by being burned at the stake. For heresy. You take a step that way because your head is in the picture on Facebook. <laughs> in my slide? Yeah. Is that better? I think so. I don't think people really are paying to see my face. Your mother is, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's better. Is that better, Mom? <laughs> he was born into a middle-class family... Because of his knowledge, he received a solid education in Oxford and later Cambridge. He was a, a great student. He got his bachelor's in 1512, his master's in 1515, both in theology. He also spent some time at Cambridge trying to get his doctorate, but he bailed out because they did not focus enough on scripture. Wow. He mastered not one, not two, not three, but... Hello, Steve. But... Eight languages. One of them was Greek, which is going to be very, very important very shortly. He never married because, hey, people who master eight languages, how do you fit that on your Christian mingle profile? Still, <laughs> he mastered eight languages, but still couldn't couldn't find the words to get a girl to go out. Hello, Snowell. No. <laughs> I don't know. We gotta come up with a name for you guys. For Stephen Snow Noel. Snowell. Snowell. No. Neve. 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 It's not just a. It's not Benefer, but it's close. <laughs> yeah, it'll get there. Yeah. Stephen Well. Wow. Well. Stephen Well. My Stavall. phone auto corrects it to that. Capital B, right there. All right. Well. It's delightful. You know who never had that conversation was William Tyndale, because he never married. We are not sure when he was actually converted. We don't really have that much because he just kind of immersed himself in God's Word, and that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time. But we do get some uh, clue into why he immersed himself in the study of God's Word, and it goes all back to the Gospel. Piper writes this, What drove Tyndale to sing one note? That was his kind of theme, that he sang one note the whole life, his whole life. To sing his one note, one note all his life was the rock-solid conviction that all human beings were in bondage to sin, blind, dead, damned, and helpless, and that God had acted in Christ to provide salvation by grace through faith. This is what lay hidden in the Latin scriptures and in the church system of penance and merit. The Bible must be translated for the sake of the liberating, life-giving gospel. So we had a good sense here that he was translating, what, this is what drove his, his passion to translate was that the gospel was in there and he wanted the gospel to be free. Alright, so let's look at jump into some of the thing, these things about Bible translation. Some of the situational context behind um, that time in England, there were no English Bibles which is like the Bible was in Latin there was no translation of the Bible in English. 
For a thousand years, the only translation of the Bible was the Latin Vulgate. Now, uh, Wycliffe did do some hand copying of uh, some of the New Testament books, but they were basically just an English translation of the Latin Vulgate, pretty much word for word. So, but there was no complete New Testament in English. Um, the Roman Catholic Church violently opposed any translation into English. In 1401, as a matter of fact, they passed a law that made heresy punishable by burning at the stake, and this included translating the Bible to something else. They considered that heresy. Another little section we'll read here from Mr. Piper's book about what was going on there. 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury created the Constitutions of Oxford, which said, It is a dangerous thing, as witnesseth St. Blessed Jerome, to translate the text of the Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. For in the translation of the same sense is not always kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter, by his own authority, may translate any text of the Scripture into English or any other tongue, and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. So not only, hey Cheryl, not only was it illegal to translate the Bible into English, it was also illegal to read any translated Bible in anything else other than Latin. Who, who made that decree? This was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel, in the Constitutions of Oxford. Together these statutes meant that you could be burned alive by the Catholic Church for simply reading the Bible in English. Wow. Yeah, we should be shaking our heads. It's just like, what in the world? So that leads us to the question of why. Why do you suppose the Catholics were so hyped up about not having English translations? Because they didn't want people to see what the Bible really said. Oh, snap. <laughs> they didn't want people to see what the Bible really said. It wasn't the Pope's word, it was God's word. Yeah. Did they, uh, did they write the catechism in English? Uh, did they write that in Latin? Only? That I don't know. I do not know. Good question. Um, Piper writes, there were surface reasons and deeper reasons why the church opposed the English Bible. The surface reasons were the claims that the English language is rude and unworthy of the exalted language of God's word. And when translates, of course, errors can creep in. So it is safer not to translate. Moreover, if the Bible is in English, then each man will become his own interpreter, and some will go astray into heresy and be condemned. And it was church tradition that only priests are given the divine grace to understand the scriptures. What's more, there's a special sacrament value to the Latin service that people cannot understand but through grace which is given. Such were the kinds of things being said on the surface. So yes, it was... It was too beautiful to be translated into English. English is too rough of a language for the, the high holiness of uh, the Bible, the Latin Vulgate. Uh, we don't want people to be interpreting that because only the priests could interpret what the Bible meant. The deeper reasons why the church opposed the English Bible, one, doctrinal justification, and the other, ecclesiastical. You know, the, the papal system, the sacramental structure of the Catholic Church, the church realized that they would not be able to sustain certain doctrines biblically because the people would see that they are not in the Bible. Somebody just said that. The lady on the couch. <laughs> and the church realized that their power and control over the people, even over the state, 
would be lost if certain doctrines were exposed as unbiblical, especially the priesthood and purgatory and penance. So, yes, as Mel has said, if those things got out, that people would see that those things that the, the Catholic Church used to wield power over the people were not really in the Bible. And they would start to question that. That would cause all kinds of trouble. So, any thoughts on... Uh, Anybody hearing this for the first time? Did you guys think of this before? Did you guys realize that in England the Bible didn't exist in English? Ronald. My mother was raised Catholic, and she said that up until the early 70s, when they went to Mass, it was always in Latin. Wow. Always. Did she understand it? No. Heck no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My dear, sweet grandmother, Irish Catholic grandmother, who says, passed away to Pat. Um, when I started seminary and I told her I was taking Greek, she looked at me very confused and said, why are you taking Greek? The Bible's written in Latin. <laughs> well, some of it is. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that eventually it always boils down to power and control? Yeah, yeah, because they... You know, even the state. I mean, it, that's even a political issue today. It's, it, yeah. It's power and control. Yeah. What were we going to say now? The idea that, like, oh, well, we don't want people to become their own interpreter. Yeah. That can sound so, like, good and churchy. Like, oh, you know, we've trained. We're going to do this yeah. for you. But it's like, no. Yeah. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. See, if you'd let us read it, we'd figure that out. Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> such a contrast to our model, right? Where we're always like, no, study. Go to Bible studies. Yeah. Read yeah. your Bible. Yeah, let scripture interpret scripture. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And even people can read the Bible through and through, memorize things, and not understand any of it if they don't have the Holy Spirit. We yeah. cannot interpret the Bible without God. Yeah, yeah. So there's the not Spirit. really a danger of, yeah. <clears throat> and plus, people, you know, leading Bible studies, preaching sermons, talking through these things, studying these things, looking up what the church father said, comparing scripture to scripture, all of that, looking what really smart men said about the Bible and, and, and leading each other and, and learning the Bible, right? It's like the, uh, the eunuch and the Ethiopian eunuch, when Philip saw him reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he says, do you know what you're reading? And he says, of course not. I don't know what I'm reading unless somebody explains it to me, right? Ezra and other people, the Old Testament, right? All day long, they read the law and they explained the law. So it's not just the reading of it, it's the understanding and the teaching of it, right? The other thing that happens in Latin is that there are mistakes that then then could use, be used to justify some of their core doctrines, right? And sometimes their core doctrines, like, for example, penance, hangs on one verse. And that one verse is flat out wrong. Because in the Latin Vulgate, Matthew 4.17 says, From the time Jesus began to preach and say, Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. However, if you turn to any modern Bible, King James included, even King Jimmy, says, from the time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a pretty big change, right? From the command of Jesus says, do penance, or the command of Jesus says, repent. What's penance? Any Reformed Catholics in here that could tell us what penance is? Paying something you owe. Yeah. Doing works to kind of atone for your things, you know, say, call 
say seven Hail Marys and call me in the morning or something? Yeah. Any good works or something to erase? Ronald. It is an arbitrary and fallible system of restitution as designated by the Roman Catholic Church. Excellent. That was a very monotone and detailed description. <laughs> so their whole system of penance basically hangs on that one wrong translation of Matthew 4.17. Right? But yet, if you were to look at the Greek manuscripts, which we'll talk about in a minute, the words metanoia, which has absolutely nothing to do with penance whatsoever. So they were using different manuscripts. So, Also, guys, it should encourage us to know our Bibles. Like we said, be encouraged to study the Bible. Be encouraged to talk about the Bible. Lead family devotions at home. Study the Bible on our own. You know, come expectantly to Sunday mornings. Be an active, expositional listener. All of those things. Very, very important to know our Bibles. All right, well, let's get into what he actually did. So behind the scenes, again, a guy named Erasmus made the first Greek New Testament in 15. 16. He didn't work from the best manuscripts. There was only actually half a dozen at that time, but he did what he could, and he made the first Greek New Testament in 1516. Going on behind the scenes then, Tyndale was disgruntled at Cambridge because of the lack of scriptural focus, so he decided to come back home to Gloucestershire, and his plan was to do private tutoring and, and um, teaching but he also had the plan of translating the Bible to English in the back of his mind, and he needed kind of a quiet place to do that. During one of his confrontations with a local uh, priest, one of, a, one of his opponents got frustrated as they were talking about a difficult passage. And his opponent said, we are better to be without God's law than the Pope's. Which is just like, wait, what? Say that again? He said to Tyndale, we're better off without God's law than we would be without the Pope. Like, we need the Pope's law more than we need the Bible. That's what he's saying. So he says, like, you know, stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying all these silly things of translating it. We have the Pope's law. We'd be better off without this anyway. It doesn't matter. We have the Pope's law. Tyndale responded with probably his most famous quote, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God, spare, if God spare my life years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow. He shall know more of Scripture than thou dost. It's trash talking in the 1500s, right? That was his goal. He wanted everybody to know and understand the Word of God, even the boy who was driving the plow. He should be able to read it in his own language, and he should be able to know it in his own language. Now, he didn't start out as a rebel. He went to ask a bishop, Bishop Tunstall, for permission to translate it into English. Permission denied. He did not get permission, so he went rogue. Anybody can think of anything else that may have been happening around the early 1500s where it might have inspired him to think about such things in a brand new and reformed kind of way? The Reformation, Luther, Luther was running for his life and he was uh, holed up in a castle and he was translating the New Testament himself into German. So he said, I think I'm inspired. I think I shall translate this into English. So what he did was he translated the Bible into English directly from the Greek 
He was a Greek wizard. So he knew Greek very, very well. The other thing that the Lord was allowing to come into play was a little technological advance about that time. Late 1400s, early 1500s. Printing press. The printing press. Absolutely. So before that, Wycliffe was doing his best, but it was all hand copy, all scribes, right? Now, about this time, movable type came into play with the printing press, right? Mr. Gutenberg, right? So that was being set up as well. So he's got, he's got a scholar. He knows Greek. He's got access to it. Something's going on. The Reformation's starting to happen, right? Now we have the means to do it in the printing press. He wanted to print it in England, but there were two problems. One, there weren't that many printing presses in England. And number two, every one of them was Watts like a hawk. So he knew he wasn't going to be able to get this printed in England. So he flew to Germany. Aha. Had a couple beers with Luther. And he went to Cologne, Germany in 1526. He printed a few copies of his New Testament. And actually, before he got the full press run done, they got raided. The manuscripts got burned and people got locked up. But he escaped with a couple thousand copies of his manuscript of the English translation of the New Testament from the Greek. These were then the first printed English translations of the Bible from the Greek. Do any of those exist today? <clears throat> any of those original first print runs? That I don't know. There are certainly originals of, and we'll look at a couple screenshots in a second, there are certainly originals of various iterations because he kept going, we'll see. He kept printing uh, new editions. I don't know if there are any from this first run. I think so. I want to say yes. I feel like there are. But they'd be worth some money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're locked away in a museum somewhere for sure or in a seminary. And, I hope so. We, uh, we got to look at some of them when I was on campus in August. Uh, Southern had one or two of them. And it's no joke, man. The guy takes him out with white gloves and, you know, sets him there. And, and when he turns pages, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> and before he, like, laid down the etiquette, like, one of the other guys literally went over to the book and grabbed it and, like, started leaving through it. I thought he was going to have an academic nerd heart attack. He was just like, please, please put that down. Please. Okay, sorry, But, yes... They do exist. I, I don't know if they exist from the, the first month, but they're Two definitely... Two known copies. Two known copies. There you go. Mm -hmm. Ask Google. And now we know. They smuggled it back into England in bales of cloth. And for the first time, this was being distributed throughout England. A Bible in English. What do you think happened then? You think the Roman Catholic Church was so excited that... Mm -hmm. People were like, yes, everybody can read God's Word. Let's schedule some Bible studies. We'll do a midweek. We'll go to the diner every Wednesday and go through Hebrews together. And they edited their Wikipedia entry. Allowable translations. <laughs> they hated it. Persecution started immediately. So people were being burned at the stake for possessing these things. People were being taken out for reading these things. There are accounts of men standing up in mass with their Bibles and reading them in English, which was pretty much a death sentence at that point because, of course, they were going to haul you out of there and put you on the stake. But this is the kind of thing that had started to happen. Right? What also started to happen was that revisions started to happen. So not only did persecution start to happen, Mr. Tyndale was like, hey, I know I got better work to do. So he immediately started revising. And he would do more and more revising up to like five different print runs that he did. 
to continue to improve. Um, and so here is, this is a screenshot of, which we'll never be able to read, but this is a screenshot of uh, Titus. And it's got all those weird things in there, like the Fs or S's and things like that. The first chapter of uh, the Apostle, the Apostle, the Apostle. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a screenshot, and I think I have one more from the Gospel of John. You know, it's really yeah. funny. Some of those first printing presses, because they had such a need, and they didn't have a lot of people that were trained in it, the printing press person was the, the designer who did it, but he would hire a lot of illiterate boys oh, to, to set the press. That's always fun. So if they saw an S, they might replace it with an F accidentally because they were illiterate. So the whole entire text would have a misprint of the same letter in it because they couldn't read. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Steve still has that problem today. <laughs> Many uh, the Catholic Church did its best to uh, besmirch this particular translation. Right? Many mistakes they identified but they also were comparing that to what? They're comparing it to the Latin Vulgate. He didn't use the Latin Vulgate. He went back to the original Greek manuscripts, so they're not going to be the same. And so, sure, when you get to Matthew 4, 17, it's not going to say do penance. It's going to say repent. That's, they lose their mind. What do you mean? We have to, we have to do penance because that's our whole system. Where, where did Tyndale get access to original Greek manuscripts in uh, England? Uh, the copies of Erasmus got to him, which are actually supposedly the Latin manuscripts were the ones that were used to do the Vulgate. So kind of the Latin copyist copied the original Greek manuscripts and then they flew right into the Latin Vulgate Bible. Whereas Erasmus then took the Greek manuscripts and compiled them into a Greek New Testament. So he didn't have a lot of them and it's not really compared to how many we have today. It still was a little shaky. He only had six or seven of them. But that's what Tyndale used to translate then his Bible. Instead of the Latin manuscripts, he used the Greek manuscripts from Erasmus. So they were making their way around, probably on the black market or something like that. Who knows? Um, the king offered to bring Tyndale back to England, and Tyndale said, no dice. Only if you authorize an English translation will I come back. And he said, no, I'm not going to authorize an English translation. So he did five other editions uh, that followed in succession, including much of the Old Testament, the Old Testament Pentateuch. He did Joshua up to Second Chronicles and Jonah. And then another big edition in 1534, he published a revised edition. And actually that Bible, the 1534 version of Tyndale, <coughs> went on to be the basis for a lot of the other Bibles, like the Coverdale Bible, the Geneva Bible especially, and actually the King James Bible. And so these guys, when they translated or when they compiled the King James, it's estimated over 80% of the King James is directly attributed to uh, Tyndale. Here is, uh, I already showed those pictures. Beginning is really interesting way it's spelled. Oh, yeah. In the big B, G, D, yeah. Was he, was only England having that law where you'd be burned at the stake? Was he safe being in Europe or did they also have similar? I think he was safer. I don't think, I think the Catholic Church was probably trying to make that the way it is everywhere, but it also depended on how powerful the Catholic Church was in whatever area that would be. England was certainly a stronghold in that. Yeah. 
<clears throat> some observations and applications on this. Um, the quote is that more people quote Tyndale than Shakespeare. <laughs> and if we read some of these things, some of these things are going to be very, very familiar to us. And they're, they're <coughs> everyday um, vocabulary in our world. Like, let there be light. These are phrases that Tyndale created from the Greek that we think of all the time when we think of Scripture. Let there be light. Am I my brother's keeper? Um, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? Even things like the signs of the times from Matthew 16.3. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the word, the word was with God, and the Word was God. These are all the ways and more that Tyndale phrased his translations. And you see how they've worked into our modern language and also our modern Bibles. A lot of them still use that. So, <clears throat> so what does it say about how precious it is to have our Bibles in English? Very. Yeah. Is that the case with other people around the world? There's still people people that don't have Bibles in their language, right? Lots of them. That's why we give money to Wycliffe, to people like Sam and Maureen and Mary Lou. Yeah. Speaking of, did you happen to see the uh, read the video, um, or sit, watch the video, and read the email from Sam and Maureen? It was showing how um, through these three countries, I believe, Africa, um, they they got. Um, finally got languages, um, the New Testament in their languages. Okay. And they actually, they showed the video of it and everybody dancing, the whole thing. And then they yeah. had, um, like, um, the band of thieves actually jumped the, you know, jumped the people coming there with the, um, you know, they had the, the funds for the celebration. Uh -huh. And they had a, the big wad of money, I guess, tucked someplace. And the thieves went through everything and never found the money. And they, they got away. Um, oh, you well. know, their stuff was all ran ransacked, but yet, you know, they weren't able to find money. So they, they were able to still put on the, you oh. know, the cel have the celebration. Nice. It was amazing. So that it showed, like, the whole video of, the you know, everybody dancing. And, yeah. You know, they had, like, them, some of them were, like, in, you know, uh, decorated boxes. Like, and they were, and yeah. like, not one copy was left. Not, like they all were sold yeah out. if you've ever seen there are um, amazing. there are videos of people getting their first bibles in their translation yeah. and weeping and kissing them yeah. and you know you know cherishing them right, right? and we've right. just we've got them everywhere exactly you know? yeah so it was we, amazing you need to stop and realize you know what it cost and Definitely. also just what a privilege that is right yeah. and we can read our bible in our own language and not be burned at the stake and that's a plus so for sure Speaking of which, he did actually become a martyr. <clears throat> he was betrayed by this guy named Henry Phillips. So Henry Phillips was a guy who blew his inheritance, and he needed to get it back. So he was hired to actually frame Tyndale. He befriended him, and as the story goes, he led him down a dark alley where only one person, single file, could go. And there were men waiting to arrest him. And as he was going down the dark alley, he kind of pointed to him and said, that's him. And they snatched him up. He was arrested. He was imprisoned. He was put in a cold, dark dungeon for 18 months. 
And the charge was that he wrote a book which asserted justification by faith, which was totally contrary, of course, to the Catholic doctrines, right? But there are sections in Piper's book here that I won't read that talk about the conditions. I mean, miserable conditions, most of which were freezing cold, and he barely had any clothes, and the clothes that he did have were worn out. And also, it was just pitch dark all the time. So he begged and he wrote, we have his letters that he wrote, send me more clothes, you know, send me another coat, send me another hat, but also send me my Greek manuscripts, send me my Hebrew manuscripts, send me a light so that I can work, you know, and pass this time. But literally think about that, like he's doing nothing but sitting in the freezing cold in the pitch darkness. And that's where he stayed for 18 months on or off, right? Eventually, he was sentenced to be burned at the stake for heresy. Um, But as a scholar, they gave him a little bit more leeway. They actually strangled him first and then burned him at the stake. I guess when you're almost a doctor of theology, they give you a little bit of a break. That was October 6th, 1536. He was given one last opportunity to speak. And his final words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. In other words, that he would then see that a, a translation was needed. <clears throat> in that. Which king was that? I do not know. I'd have to look it up. I want to say Henry. I want to say the eighth. Yeah. Because I think it was around Seventh the time that Warren Erasmus were having the whole dialogue with Utopia and Praise of Folly. Yeah. That's my first guess, but I'm not sure. Ten months after he was burned at the stake, uh, they actually did authorize an English translation of the New Testament. In 1537, a gentleman named John Rogers basically took Tyndale's work, crossed out his name, and put his name on it and said, here you go, and published it as that. Supposedly, between the Old and New Testaments, there was a WT that was written for William Tyndale, and that was the only credit that he got. But there he is. This is a pretty famous painting of him you can see he's got the rope he's being choked and you can't read that coming out but it says uh, his famous quote open the eyes of the king of england public spectacle of being burned at the stake we don't have that too much these days Um, some observations applications as we think about the martyrdom of mr tyndale and things are resonating with you. Who, who authorized the English translation? The king finally did. The king did. Yep. About ten months after his death. Did that correspond with uh, separating, creating the Anglican Church, separating from the Catholic Church? Uh, there was there was more going on behind the scenes in the King James, <clears throat> especially with the Puritans, because they wanted one version as well, a different version. But the king at the time, King James, didn't like the margin notes that were in the Geneva Bible and the other because they were too Reformed and too Calvinistic. Mm. So he's like, tell you what, we'll write you a new Bible. So that's where the King James came from. So there was that with the Puritans and the Anglican Church and that going on. I'm not sure about the Anglicans and the Catholics. So look at that. What else? What other thoughts? <clears throat> Ronald. 
I'm on a website <coughs> here, um, 1611.com, that says that the King James Bible is the only authorized and accurate version of the Bible. Can you expound on that, please? I was hoping to get to that later. <laughs> I am going to talk about that, so hold your question. We'll get to that momentarily. What about how hard uh, he worked? Hard work being required for spiritual growth and kingdom goals. Like he slaved away at this and it cost him a lot. Piper had this to say in the book, uh, the key to spiritual achievement is to work hard and to know and believe and be happy that God's sovereign grace is the decisive cost, cause of all the good that comes. So it's like, it's both, right? It's that corny saying like, work like it all depends on you, then pray like it all depends on God. Like, it's both. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is he who works in you, right, to accomplish his goodwill. So it's not one or the other, but men like Tyndale tell us and inspire us to work hard. But it's up to him. He can't change the king's mind. He can't do it, but he still works hard and relies on God to do that. So what about, like we were talking about last time? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say a minor observation, but I've always been fascinated with the idea that when when man got their greatest amount of pride, God ended up putting them in a state of confusion and creating the concept <coughs> of languages to fragment our own oh, understanding. Yeah. But then at Pentecost, it was the sign of God that he was ushering in the whole new era by bringing in a sudden understanding of the languages. Yeah. So that, and it was the way that the word did translate, and, and God shared one mass <coughs> meaning with, with everyone in that moment at Pentecost. And I just find it amazing that yeah. the concept of that same Pentecostal experience of expanding the word throughout understanding didn't happen until 1530. Yeah, yeah, the use of languages both to humble and progress the gospel. Yeah. Um, what about like last time we were talking about theological triage and what issues are worth dying on or dying about, right? There are some hills that are worth dying on, right? He went to the stake for Bible translation. That's a hill worth dying on, right? There are some first order doctrines that are worth, worth the fight. So. But yes, let us talk a little bit about uh, our modern English translations, like how we actually get our Bibles. So we've got to split it really between Old Testament and New Testament because they're kind of two different stories, right? Old Testament is pretty, pretty solid. Old Testament was preserved by a bunch of Jewish scholars called the Masoretes, and the Masoretic text has been stable really for thousands and thousands of years. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 or so, it only proved how well the Masoretes had preserved the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, of course, was also preserved by Judaism and all of that. So it is kind of what it is. So a lot of the speculation and mistrust comes in about the New Testament. So how does the New Testament, the, the New Testament was written in Greek, right? Why was it written in Greek? I thought they spoke Aramaic and stuff. How was it written in Greek? Yeah. It was, it was the lingua franca, is that what they call it? The, the operating language of the day. So it was written in Greek. All the originals are gone, but we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies. Why did they make copies? Why did they make so many copies? 
Well, they distributed them to the church. I mean, yeah. they, they became. <coughs> you couldn't just run over to a copy machine and <coughs> run one off, right? You had to pay a scribe to make copies, right? And if we were a local church, you sent it over to that church and they had their own copy. Yeah. It had to be written, otherwise it ends up like the telephone game. Mm-hmm. We're all telling Noel, and I'll tell Steve, Steve. Yeah. You know, and it'll be different by the time it gets to Steve. But Wendy, that's what happened because it took them decades <laughs> to write this down. And by the time they wrote it down, the message was perverted by the church to make it say whatever they wanted it to say. So, right? There are uh, plenty of examples of oral tradition and plenty of examples of how protected oral tradition was. And yes, when the apostles started to die out, they're like, uh, we need to actually write this stuff down for the church. (coughs) A lot of that, of course, was written by the eyewitnesses themselves within decades uh, of people. It's like, go ask him. He was there. There's Peter. Talk to him. You know. He wrote it. So yeah, there was definitely some oral tradition in the beginning, but it was very controlled. It was preserved. Even after what we were reading in 1 Corinthians 15 last week and then on Sunday too, Paul says, I delivered unto you what I received. Right? You have that understanding of, no, there's a process here. We are protecting this message. And besides, who said they didn't write it down? Like just because it's not here anymore doesn't mean they didn't write it down. Maybe they wrote it down. So... We have thousands upon thousands of copies because that's how they distributed it. They made a copy. Say Steve was a rich guy and he's like, I want to own my own copy of the Gospel of John. Here's whatever, denarius, make me a copy, scribe. So he would do that. He would hire a guy to do that. But as far as the New Testament origin, there's a couple different paths, right? In about 380, from the Latin manuscripts, again, we just talked about that, Jerome created the Vulgate So he used, so there was tons, and actually still today, that is the most. There's over 10,000 Latin manuscripts. So there's there's still a lot of Latin manuscripts around. And so Jerome said, hey, I'm going to put all these together. And so he utilized the Latin manuscripts to go into the Roman Catholic Bible, which there was a lot of mistakes, like we talked about in Matthew 4.17 and those things. But nevertheless, the Vulgate became the official Bible of Roman Catholic Church, and still is. It's gone through a couple revisions here and there, but it still is. That's kind of the the Latin, the Roman Catholic side of the equation, right? Um, We talked about Erasmus. He created the Textus Receptus, which is the version of the New Testament from his six shaky Greek manuscripts. Right? And that is the basis for the King James Bible. Right? So to Ron's question, is the King James Bible the only authorized translation and should we be reading excuse me, just the King James Bible because it is God's holy word? <clears throat> what do we respond to that? Yes, Steve says yes. Um, <laughs> what? Why don't we stick with the Greek? <laughs> I literally didn't even know King James only, that's what you call it, King James only was a thing probably till my second year in seminary. Like I had just, I, and I literally laughed out loud when I heard it because I had already been through Greek. So I'm like, what do you mean an English translation is the only translation that God inspired and it, it doesn't. It wasn't written in English. <laughs> we talked about this. Like, it took a long time to get to English, so why is it English, right? There are churches in Sussex 
that are King James only churches, right? They are around, they exist. But the problem with the King James, it's a beautiful Bible, it's a beautiful translation. But think about it. What are, what are some problems with the King James? Challenges, shall we say. Let's be a little bit more charitable. What are some challenges? More difficult to understand. More difficult to understand. That's proper English. That there are, used. English is cultural. Cultural is a reflection of time. Yeah, be the thee, the thou, thus doest everything, right? We don't yeah. talk like that anymore. So how are we in 2022 supposed to understand? How are we supposed to do that? How aren't we supposed to <laughs> understand it? I always have a difficult time with spiritus, because by the time that the King James translated the Greek for spiritus, they were using the word in the context of an apparition. So instead of having the Holy Spirit, King James is full of the Holy Ghost. Oh, the Holy Ghost and, and Jehovah and all of that, yes. The Holy Ghost caused problems when I was little. Yeah, I can understand. Were you scared of the ghost? Yes, afraid of the ghost. Yeah. It wasn't well explained. Even when I was younger, the church we were in was not King James only, but they preached from the King James. And I remember being like, but we say that ghost but they what? doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did they do? They preached from the King James. Oh, preached from the King You said it really fast, and I thought you said they played drinking games. <laughs> <laughs> preached from the King James. No, they did not play drinking games. <laughs> they were Baptists. They could not do that. Yeah, you kind of get that idea, like, you know, some translations are more holy than others, depending on where you go to, yeah. right? Um, Dr. Jones, one of my professors in his little book here, How We Got the Bible, which is a very, um, he says, uh, furthermore, 16th and 17th century Bibles included, included terms like besom and wimples and crisping pins that range from confusing to comical today and don't even get me started on phrases like my bowels shall sound like a harp. <laughs> so there's some cultural... Words maybe, but not harp. There are some cultural challenges with the King James. What, what else about... What, think about where it came from, right? Six to seven... Greek manuscripts. You think that's a problem? Is that manuscripts of all the books, or just various iterations? Some of them had different different books, different copies of different books. Some of them had, you know, whole things, whatever. It's a problem because those could be wrong, right? We're going to get into a second the science of textual criticism in that, right? What that looks like. But if the bigger pool of resources that you have to draw from, the more reliable you're going to be able to be in your translation, right? But let's face it, the King James, you get, I have one actually found in the, uh, in the house next door when we, were, when we were moving in. And the, the note in it is from, I don't know when it was from. But anyway, it, it, the the gospel's in here, guys. I don't want I don't want to I don't want to mock this translation. It was hard to memorize as a student. In it's hard to Sunday, memorize as a student in, in Sunday school. I was a bad memorizer. And some of it is beautiful. It was hard. Christian school. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're really not going to you know the doctrines are here, the gospel is here. You know, all of these things are here. They're just little nuances, right, that might make it a little bit more difficult. But if you're going to hold something up 
to the standard and say, unless you ascribe to this translation, you are not a Christian. What do they call that? Be nice. Heresy. <laughs> what? Heresy. Heresy. <laughs> Pull that wrong. Heresy. That nice? No, that was, that was nice. I thought you said crazy. That would not have been nice. Heresy. Um, I was going to say narrow-minded because then you're centering a person's faith around a linguistic yeah. limitation and you're not putting it around meaning. And what? I feel like the meaning is the bigger part of the faith. Right. What are we worshiping here? The Bible. The Bible or the God of the Bible. Yeah. Right? So it's idolatry. Like you think like I can elevate a Bible translation to be a salvation issue. That's idolatry. It really is because that becomes what saves me, not the God of that Bible. Right, so that's where we run into it. Like, there's nothing technically wrong with the King James Bible, but if you're going to say that's the only Bible or you're not saved, that's a problem. And so, and those people are out there. When we started Highlands Bible Church and we moved into this building, I had a guy lovingly come and confront me and told me that I was preaching from corrupted texts and I need to stop and I need to, and I need to preach from the King James. And I said to him, what Erasmus said, what are you going to do with all the errors of the copyists? Because they're all there. You know, you got to correct them. They're there. They also had like something like 5,000 margin notes in the original King James Bible that somehow disappeared because they didn't want to, they didn't want to even think that the King James had anything that was wrong in them. So, anyway. That kind of leads us to our third category. So we've got the Latin Roman Catholic Bible. We've got the King James Bible coming from the Textus Receptus. And then we've got the last kind of category of our reliable, our modern translations, right? Those use all available manuscripts that we can possibly get our hands on, right? Because after Tyndale, after King James, did they keep finding manuscripts? Yeah, they found thousands and thousands of manuscripts. And so that just helps us know what the original autographs <clears throat> said. There are close to 25,000 copies of the New Testament manuscripts by this point, and that number is growing all the time, right? Again, they're in various languages. There's only a little over 5,000 in Greek. But to put that in comparison to other things, that is embarrassing, an embarrassing amount of riches compared to some of the other classical uh, literature at that time. Thousands and thousands and thousands. So what we then have to do is uh, the doctrine of textual criticism means that you take all of those manuscripts and you spread them out, and as you're looking at them, you come to see what the common consensus is of those verses. And sometimes it's really clear. If you have... 4,000 manuscripts that say the verse one way, and then you have maybe 1,000 that say it a different way, like, who's right? It, you know, it's like, scribes make mistakes, right? There are no mistakes in the Bible, but we can, per se, right? But we understand there's differences in the manuscripts. The science of textual criticism is pool, pooling all those together, using our brains and comparing them to say, okay, well, this makes sense, right? So... When, when, when we have our modern Bibles, like the ESV or the CSB or any other word-for-word -word translation, they're going to be based on <clears throat> mostly, this is called the, the UBS Greek translation, and this is the NA, the Nestle Alond uh, Greek translation of the New Testament. And 
they list, there are pages and pages and pages of all the manuscripts that they use to create each one of these things. And when we have a variant, right, it's going to tell us, hey, uh, papyrus number 10 says it this way. But if we look at, you know, uh, manuscript 058, uh, it says it this way. And so we know all the differences in all these manuscripts. That's the science of textual criticism that's in there. So the idea, takeaway, is that you can trust your Bibles. You can absolutely trust your Bibles. And when I'm preaching, like, I, I start here anyway, guys. I don't, I don't start with this, right? This is where we start. And you'll be surprised how often our modern Bibles are just dead on with, what the Greek is. And it's important to know the Greek because there are nuances and things that that doesn't necessarily give you when you go deep dive. But point is, you can trust your Bibles in that, especially your New Testaments. So thoughts, comments, questions? Is there a a, um, a version of the Bible that's maybe not the best to read as far as like sometimes for me uh, to understand NLT? works out good new living translation but yep. you know i just you know i'm wondering you know is there out of all the different translations there's something maybe we should steer maybe away from a little bit more than a different one um great question uh it comes down to a couple things one is philosophy of translation right so for example csb and esv mm-hmm. are what they call word for word translation Okay. So they're going to try to be as close as possible. ESV especially gets a little clunky because they're like so close to the Greek and Greek doesn't always flow well into English, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a word-for-word word translation philosophy. NIV is more of a thought-for-thought thought kind of. So they're going, to take more, they're going to take more liberties to try and smooth it out to make a better readable version. They may not be as wooden as word-for-word, word, right? It's more of a thought-for-thought. Thought. When you start getting into... NLT, and especially like the message, right? Mm-hmm. Then it's going more of a paraphrase kind mm-hmm. of thing. This is the idea. This is the feel of what they're going for, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's really anything exclusively, the second part of it, that you need to stay away from necessarily. I would just caution you not to rely on one translation. Yeah, I like I like reading the actual different translations too, you know, because... Yeah. You know, because they use different words when yeah. you read certain scriptures. So there's nothing wrong with, like, yeah. if you're reading along in the elect standard version, sorry, ESV, and you see, you know, nobody got that. And you see... <laughs> I chuckled on the inside. Oh, thank you very much. And you see something that you don't understand, and you jump out to read it in NLT, and it kind of helps you get the gist of what's going on. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But no. just don't stay so devoted to one translation that that's your only thing. Because NLT might deviate a little bit from, like, if you're, it's not really appropriate to do, like, a deep dive study in the NLT, per se, because you might lose the actual definition of what the word might be, right? Right. So it might lead you astray in some ways, Mm. right? So just be careful. We have a wealth of Bible translations, so use them all. Yeah, especially on your phone, too, like, you have the, you know, you you can just click on whichever one you want and read the different scripture, yep. which is great. When I'm, when I'm doing a sermon, I will have the ESV on one pane, I'll have the CSV in another pane, and I will have the Greek on one more pane of my Bible software. So I can always kind of just 
look over and see like, all right, well, what did they do with that? Mm -hmm. you, know, you can see even the nuances between those two translations as well. So. Definitely. Thank you. When you referenced uh, the four or five thousand uh, manuscripts, yep. those are not complete. Those many are just partials, right? Many are just partials, right? right. There are well-known manuscripts like Vaticanus or Sinaiticus or other things that, that have the whole New Testament or various parts of it. Some of them are just a gospel, some of them are both, you know, a fragment of something yeah, like Just that. a piece of paper, just one little fragment. Yeah, I mean, some of these fragments, yeah. it looks like, you know, of course they're thousands of years old, right? So right. they got, right. look like they've been blown up and decayed. It depends on where they were, where they found them, what they were written on, all that. Um, so yeah, that was one of the things we we're going to talk about there. Thank you, Sherry. There's, there's not really one best translation. Yeah, right. I always wondered that. Yeah. Well, am I reading the right translation? Should I be reading a different translation? You know, it's kind of... I just think take advantage of all the resources that we have in the translation. Don't tie yourself to one specific one. Right? Definitely. <clears throat> yeah, I'll read, I'll go through and I'll start with King James and I'll read it in whatever this one is. I don't even know what this one is. The Jerusalem Bible, which I don't really like that much. But then we have... NIV and a bunch of different CSBs and ESVs, and I'll read it in other translations once we get through the Greek. So it helps. It does. But I would also suggest, and I don't have to tell you guys this because we're at Highlands Bible Church, but you know, if, if, a, if a preacher is going to preach, he needs to preach the meaning of that passage, right? Not just the feel of that passage. And some translations lead you more to a feelings based. Translation, yeah. right? And that's why it's really important. I believe if you're going to be a preacher, you got to know the languages. You really do. That's why when you get a Master of Divinity, you're going to have to study Greek and Hebrew, and you're going to have to do it for a reason. Because as good as any English translation is, it wasn't written in English. And so there are. There, I'm always learning something. Every passage that I translate, I just did Acts 2 for Sunday, and it's like you just catch stuff that you would never catch in English. Whether it's just the feeling of it, or the tone of voice, or whatever it is, you get to you get to feel it a lot differently. So always, if you're if you're listening to other teachers or whatever preachers, make sure that they are doing their best to be scholars of those translations as well. All right. So yeah, I hope this uh, definitely gave you some more. Um, do I have any more slides? I do not. More um, confidence in our translations. More realization of what it cost. Literally, the English Bible that you have in your hands, you have to thank William Tyndale for. Uh, in, in so. All right. Well, let me pray for us. And I hope this will motivate us to cherish the Word of God more. And Father, thank you so much for, again, this time that we can spend and we can think about... Um, what this Bible that we study here at Highlands Bible Church um, cost William Tyndale and, and others. Um, we thank you that you worked in such a way to uh, open the eyes of the King of England and, and get an English translation and one that has, of course, made its way here. We pray for Mary Lou, for, um, for the Parsons, for others who work in Bible translation, that they would be able to get Bibles into the languages of the people.
Pray for us, Lord, that we would cherish the word of God, that we would study it, that we would treat it like the gift that it is, uh, which <clears throat> men and women probably have given their lives to defend. And so, Lord, we thank you. Pray that you will uh, open our eyes to see beautiful things from your law and pray that you will dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I know it's successful. Hit it, Justin. Oh. <laughs>